This is the Local Hearted Podcast, episode number 18, with painter Fleeta Monahan. Welcome to the Local Hearted Podcast. I'm Meredith Adler, and I am your host. Join me as we get to know the people who create the wide variety of art in Asheville and in the mountain counties of Western North Carolina. We'll also talk with some of the people who create opportunities for our local artists and help them shine. Hi, this is Meredith, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Local Hearted Podcast. My guest today is Asheville painter Fleeta Monahan, who creates oil and encaustic paintings at 310 Art, the gallery and art school she founded, owns, and directs in the River Arts District of Asheville, North Carolina. Fleeta shared so much in this interview about the internal process of creating art how she approaches abstract paintings, how she evolves her work by seeking new artistic challenges, and her path to creating a business centered around art. I especially appreciated learning how having a daughter was the impetus for her to focus on her art career, and her idea of the overall element that helps an artist's work appeal strongly to the public. Listening to Fleeta describe the vibrant and nurturing environment that is 310 Art, it is not surprising that 310 is the longest-running fine art school in the River Arts District. I am very happy to share with you my conversation with artist Fleeta Monahan. Fleeta, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm so excited to have you here. Well, I'm very pleased to be able to talk for a little while with you too. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. I guess by here we should state where we are and Mm -hmm. I'll let you do that. Okay, well we are in the classroom of my studios here at 310 Art Um, and in the background you may hear some noise because we're preparing for an event coming up and there's banging on the walls and things like that. Um, But the room we're in is right in the midst of the gallery Uh, at Riverview Station in the River Arts District of Asheville, North Carolina. Thank you. Yeah, we're getting excited about the event to come, aren't we? We we are. Yes, we are. We've got some things coming up. It just never ends. We're always changing things around here and working hard. All right. So we will talk about your gallery and the situation, why there's even a classroom here. We'll talk about that in a little while, but uh, first I would love to talk to you about your own work as an artist. And I have looked at your site and looked at your work, but Mm -hmm. would love for you to be the one to describe in your own words what it is you do. Well, um, I'll talk about current Mm -hmm. activities and then we can reflect back a little on evolution of all of it, but um, I am currently working in oil painting and in encaustic. 
which is a painting with wax method that predates oil painting. And uh, the oil painting is my primary medium and it always has been from the time that I was a kid. I work in various sizes, but this year into next, my aim is to be working in larger format. Uh, I have the luxury of not trying to please a market all the time, so it allows me to sort of follow my bliss with it and do what um, stirs my imagination. I'm working more in an abstracted uh, genre, but always refer referencing the natural world, um, both things that human beings create and make, you know, urban landscapes and so on, and um, nature, water, skies, landscapes, and all of that um, is, is what I'm doing currently. Okay. I'm really curious about how you go about abstracting in that way. If you can talk about that. Well, I can, and it sounds very academic, really, when you ask about that. Um, abstraction is probably the hardest genre to work in because it is very formal. And by that, I mean it's an academic um, derivative. It's not just putting on an ins inspiration hat and leaping about with a beret on and letting anything come that's going to come. Um, to do it well, which is quite difficult, and I will interject that I don't always succeed um, with what I'm doing, but that's okay, um, is to really understand the formal uh, compositional uh, principles and elements, and that's the basis of it all. So rather than getting and giving a lecture on what those are, it's just how I begin is usually having an idea that may relate to one of those um, formal elements of composition or design. For example, it could be color, and it could be choosing a color scheme or a dominant color or uh, a problem, not in the sense that it's a, it's a sad problem, but a challenge, I guess is a better word to use, of what I want to do with the work. Um, what I'm doing now is working with a red, yellow, blue, very, very limited palette. That's nothing new. I've done that for many years. But all, creating things that are predominantly neutral in, in the color, which by that I mean grays, browns, soft, soft variations of those uh, neutralized colors with little pops of what we would consider uh, primary or secondary, like red, yellow, blue, green, orange, um, um, violet, those types of things, where those are the things that are sort of the counterpoint to luscious, beautiful variations of grays from light to dark. The content of that being things that are calming and restful, but also evoke memories of past events or um, things that I've seen, or I like the idea of having uh, human interaction with nature. You know, in a way, I really kind of think about our architecture is a form of nature. We're creating it, and Jackson Pollock said, I am nature, so we are nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I start with one of those formal challenges, 
it makes it a lot easier to sort of work my way into content than into starting with an idea or an emotion or, you know, thinking about what I want it to say because I feel like that's kind of inherent in, in the challenge and also it evolves as I do the work. So I don't always have to know ahead of time what my message might be. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. That's, uh, that's something I'm going to be looking forward to <laughs> replaying and listening to, honestly. Okay. Yeah. Well, art can be very cerebral. It can be an intellectual um, thing as well as an active physical engagement with the panel you're working on or the canvas or picking up the brush or whatever. It's, um, you know, standing or sitting, moving around. It's almost like a dance. Um, but it also requires a lot of thinking mm-hmm. um, and uh, not necessarily planning in that in the way that we might... Um, sorry about that. It's okay. <laughs> um, it, it, not in the way that we might, like, plan a vacation or, you know plan our work day, mm-hmm. but um, sort of conceptualizing what we're going to do, I guess, is a way to say it. Okay. So you do have some idea when you start, but there's also a dance that goes on. Exactly, yeah. Um, okay. One famous artist said that um, intuition is based on experience, and I tro- totally believe that um, it it. The way that I interpret that is that we actually have to engage and act, be active with our art and make stuff mm-hmm. before we can tap into our intuitive side with it. And I think that's a misconception about abstract art to, to the general public that it's it's just some sort of mindless, non-thinking activity you hear the the comment, I mean, I'm sure everybody's heard it, my kid could do that. Well, your kid probably could, because kids are so tapped into <laughs> their life and what's happening at the moment. But um, the engagement of, of responding to what we've seen and what we've done and our physical actions and movements while we're painting and all of those types of things, what we've read, uh, conversations that we've had, art that we've seen, all of those types of things go into what then can then be a natural flow from the mind to the hand to the canvas. And, um, and it's, it's not a talent. It's a developed practice. Mm. It, it comes from experience and from doing it. It's not something that's just going to happen. And every, that's why everyone's is going to be so unique to them because it's based on your own history. Mm-hmm. If they are honest yeah. in their work. And that's, again, another big challenge because we are influenced. I think all artists are influenced by what they've seen and artists that they admire, the uh, often unconscious uh, urge to mimic Mm-hmm. is there so that there's a, a need to really cut through all of that and be be authentic not unique but authentic in what we're doing so with abstraction too that's a that's a big challenge to do that if one is a landscape painter and I totally admire landscape painting and I paint landscape work I always do every year um, it's almost easy after a while if you gain certain skills with it 
because you have learned technique and you have learned the way colors interact together and you've done it repeatedly and you can remember what water looks like when the light hits it in the afternoon, all of those types of things. But when you're going into abstraction, you're pulling all of those visual stimuli, but you're not putting it into necessarily a recognizable form. So you've got to interpret it in a whole new way. And if you can draw from your own experience as opposed to the experience of what somebody else has created, um, it, it takes some guts and it takes some deep reaching and it's hard. It's not easy. You know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. And that's why, I guess for me, painting abstractly is such a challenge that that's why I like it. I don't get bored with it. Sometimes I put it aside. Sometimes it's overwhelming and too much. And I might paint a landscape Mm -hmm. just for the relaxation of, okay, phew, you know, I need to take a rest. But, um, but then you get back to the, uh, or the abstract artist, I will say in myself, get back to that problem or that challenge or whatever it is, you know, to really be authentic and, it's hard. It's it's not easy. You like the challenge of needing to come up with your own vocabulary, it sounds like. I do, and I don't want to be bored, and I don't want to do the same thing over and over again, ever, you know. So um, I, I don't want to be pigeonholed with a style. I don't necessarily want to be have a recognizable style that... 20 years ago, you could identify it with what I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. Um I I feel like I would just be wasting my time and I might be better being a writer or something like that if I were, you know, I might change careers if that's what it was. Um, the idea of the constant um, striving towards something that's very, very difficult and achieving it is, I think, the motivating force for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a different motivation than a lot of people have. I think that you see so many people seeking their identifiable style, mm-hmm. wanting that, you know, sure. being frustrated they don't have that. So yeah. I like hearing a new perspective about it. Yeah. Well, the, the market, the galleries want the artist to do that. And that's from a practical standpoint. That's a marketing thing so that they can sell work or, and I have a gallery too, so I understand the the reason for it, you know, that um, it would be something that somebody could hang in their home and somebody else would see it and go, oh, that's a work by so-and-so. Um, and that would lend prestige and um, validation to the collector. And I understand that. And here in the gallery that I own, I also want to see when the artists present their work in a group in one place to have some continuity to it. And I demand that of myself as well. I don't like to pull, uh, you know, a piece from 10 years ago and put it next to a piece I did yesterday and have it just a diverse and confusing collection on display at one particular time in one particular place. I don't think that's a good idea. But for from a personal standpoint, I, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't always want to, you know, have work up in one place for two years and it's always got to be of the same type of look or idea. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I feel like that's just stultifying and boring. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to allow yourself to develop and stretch and grow as an artist, but when displaying, you like the idea of displaying a unified collection. Exactly, and I do see the wisdom in that. I think that shows that there's a, a clear focus with the artist. Um, so when I do work, like this current series I'm working on, there's a cohesive element to it that if you walk into the room, I would hope that it would be identifiable as work by an artist, even though each piece is going to be different in some way, and um, that it will be a, a continuity of thought, a, a sentence in a paragraph in a chapter mm -hmm. in a book of visual um, storytelling that makes sense together. You know, mm -hmm. that, that is one way to sort of describe it. Um, but I think that artists can be uh, worried about selling their work and be too overwhelmed by if a work doesn't sell, it's no good, or any of those types of practical concerns that can kind of hinder that sort of freedom of expression. So it's, it's, it, it's just reality. It's the world we live in. You know, we have to balance our economy with our, with our work. That's why I said at the beginning, I'm grateful to have the freedom to do it, and, but it's taken a long time to get there, um, just financially, to be able to sort of say, I'm just going to do what I want. I'm just going to do what, I, what is inspiring me, and I'm not going to worry about if anybody likes it or if some, somebody's going to come in and buy it. Yes, um, you are uh, benefiting from seeds you have been planting for a long time, I think. Yes, I am, and, and, and other artists can do it as well. Um, and one thing is, if we work together, like we do here at the, at the studio um, at 310 Art, we can kind of support that kind of thing amongst ourselves. Mm -hmm. But one thing I've seen, because of the experience of actually dealing with collectors or people new to collecting or somebody that may have a, a large collection and want to add to it, the work that is always the most um, readily appreciated by the public regardless of education in the arts or anything, is the true uh, work that comes from the artist's inner soul, not when they're trying to please somebody. Mm -hmm. So I think to encourage artists and to sort of remind myself as well that that's the way to go, eventually that's the way that we will be more financially successful and place our work in beautiful homes and things like that too so you know it's we just have it just takes some time you know you can't expect instant instant gratification on that type of thing and being deliberate about gaining the experience and the knowledge and the learning mm -hmm. because without that as a continual growth experience um, you won't have the um, experience to add to the intuition so you know, it, it has to be a, a job. It has to be a serious and deliberate job. Just as a heart surgeon is not going to graduate from residency and always do heart surgery the same way that he or she did 20 years ago, there's constant changing in learning. And the same, same with artists. New materials, new ideas, um, new self-direction, new ways to do things that is that is a unique development of that artist mm -hmm. um, all of that comes in so you have to 
combine the intellectual and the hard work with with the soul searching. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, you're reminding me each piece informs everything that comes later, even the failed pieces. Exactly. In fact, the failed pieces are actually sometimes some of the best stepping stones. It's a, and sometimes the failures can turn into the best works through painting over or learning from your mistakes and correcting things. And just when things look the darkest, you know, um, mm. and the most bleak, suddenly, you know, the sun comes up and something wonderful will happen with your work. So because it just gives you permission to try something new, you know, it's, you have nothing to lose. Um, so, you know, failure is a, is a, a wonderful thing for an artist. Um, if you have the right attitude about it and don't just have some, you know, internal, you know, bashing of yourself and saying you're no good. Um, but if you can say, Oh, this is a great stepping stone for me, then, you know, it can be. Mm-hmm. Keep that failed piece on your easel a little longer and say, well, mm-hmm. I may as well try this thing I always wanted right. to try and That's see true. what comes. Yeah, I have one piece that I just finished at least three years ago. I started it and it, it was a terrible failure for over and over and I'd pull it out. And plus it's a big piece um, and it's very heavy. And so I'd drag it out and work on it and it would just get worse and worse and so finally I don't know four months ago or five months ago I dragged it out again and said okay this is it I'm just going to work on it and I covered it all up and changed it completely and sort of with my new idea of going with the neutral colors and said I my original idea was not working for me and and actually I like that piece now you know and it's hanging on the wall here and I feel Finally, that it it did work, and I learned a lot from it. And the history of what went on underneath it is evident. You can sort of see all the textures and scratching back to some of the original paint and all that kind of thing. So it, it's it's got a long history, and it's still really heavy. It's got oak sides, <laughs> and it I had to get help hanging it on the walls. So, but I'm you know it was a it was a stepping stone. It just took me three or four years to jump from the next stone on that one. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those things you learned from yeah. all those paintings in between. Right, right. And now it has all those layers that That's are right. probably very rich. I'll ask you to show me okay. today. I, I that will be fun. You. I will show you. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm glad we've got a dumpster here at the studio, too, because sometimes <laughs> you just need to pitch them and get them out of your face. You know, trying to revive an old one is sometimes not the way to do it. You just have to say, okay, it's not going that way. It's a curse. Get rid of it. Start afresh. So You don't yeah. want to be hungry. <laughs> no, absolutely not. not. Yeah. Oh, I have one more question about the abstract discussion we were having. Sure. Because if I understood you correctly, you were saying your experience comes in not just to the technique, but you might actually be painting from a personal experience. Mm-hmm. And it is your experience that you're having while you're painting. I'm curious because... I'm going to see if I can phrase this the way I'm thinking. I can look at your paintings and they work for me, but I didn't have your experience. So why do your paintings, why do abstract paintings like yours work for the viewer? Well, it doesn't really matter if somebody else has the same experience or understands what the message is. Um, I think when it works, 
it will tap into some memory or recognition for that individual that responds to it positively and, and is intrigued. Um, and there's several ways that that can happen. Um, one is just referencing nature. If I think that the abstract work is successful, if somebody comes in and they're not educated in the history of abstractions, that's a, a dense and heady kind of history. If they say, this reminds me of a sky, or I can see this image in it. They may see an elephant, or they may see a bird, or something like that. Um, you know that you have drawn them into the picture. And I have had people see things that I never saw before in my own work. So that's one way, is just some visual recognition from nature. Mm -hmm. um, or it can be a reminder of an experience Color is a great influencer of emotion. And so it may not be the emotion that um, the painter was tapping into or the exact memory, um, literally, but it may also resonate with somebody else from either a similar shared experience or even something totally different. Uh, one example I can give you, and this was not an abstract painting, but it was a very abstracted painting. I did a painting a long time ago of a woman standing in a lake, and it was originally supposed to be a little girl in a lake. I grew up in the subtropics of Florida, and I grew up on a lake, and it was Florida wetlands environment, very dense and thick with teeming life, animals and plants of all kinds. It was, it smelled in a certain way, and it was just a wonderful experience, and it really, really influenced me in my connection with the earth and my place in it. I felt a part of things as a kid when I was in that lake with all the turtles and alligators and fish and everything and, you know, saw the ducks and the, the duck nests with the eggs and everything. You know, it was, it was just sort of this wild experience. So I thought I would do a painting of that and it had a lot of subtropical colors, reds and things. So I started out with a little girl in a water area with lots of oranges, and it turned into a woman. And I thought, well, that's what I am now, so that's kind of interesting. And I put some what I thought looked like palm trees in it, and it was all very expressionistic, not literal, but I thought you could see what it was. I thought you you could see the woman, you could see the water, and I thought you could see the palm trees. And to me, I called it initiation. And I thought it was an uplifting painting. And we had a show here, and a woman came into my space and found me, and she was trembling about it because she saw the palm trees as razor blades. Mm. So she, and I was... She was drawing on a whole different experience that was obviously related to something in her life. And I guess those orange and red colors reminded her of something different. So I didn't ask her, and I did tell her it was palm trees, and I was shocked at the response to that because where I was doing something really calming and whatnot. Well, of course, she didn't want to buy the painting, you know, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and who can blame her? I wouldn't want a bad memory like that. But, but that's just an example of how people can react differently to something that you don't intend or, or anything that you might have ever uh, dreamed of.
but that's okay. And in a way, that made the painting successful because it did elicit a response. It, it, it did draw something from her, and unfortunately, it was probably a bad experience, but, you know, it that happens. And then others liked the painting, and somebody in my family loves that painting and says it's the best one I've ever done, and asked me not to sell it, so I haven't. I took it, I took it out of the gallery, so, you know, it's just one of those things, and but I, I do think a work is successful when it elicits a response. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't elicit a response at all, then, you know, something's not working for you. Mm-hmm. It's, if nobody looks at it, nobody says anything, it, they, their eyes just keep roaming across the wall to the next thing, you know, maybe not, not too successful in that piece. So, And although it didn't feel good to that woman... Maybe that is just what she needed in her life at that time, and we don't know. You know, she may have needed to have that experience for whatever reason. It may be. It may have been a cathartic thing. Yeah. You know, I think for the painter, painting is cathartic. It it helps us to maybe overcome some experiences that may or traumas or things like that. Everybody has them. Um, then helps us to work through and make peace with things and. I mean, even if it's a painting of trees in nature. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my very famous uh, favorite artists is Joan Mitchell, and I love her work. And to me, it sings with joyful bliss, most of it. There's a few that look very depressed, but most of it is just joyful. And then if you read her her biography, not her autobiography, her biography, um, she had a very tormented life and was a mess. And it was wonderful to to see that she could tap into the joy of living and convey that to others. So there was some joy in her spirit. Mm-hmm. And then she put that into her paintings um, while the outer trials of her life were much more complicated and mm-hmm. difficult, you know. So I think in a way that's how, that's the catharsis um, yeah. that I mentioned, it, it can, you know, help you to help the viewer and help the artist to work through things and to maybe find the beauty in life. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate hearing that. Yeah, maybe she was painting what she needed in her life. I think she probably was. I mean, one, one never knows. And she did have a, a bad breakup with a lover, and her paintings during that period were very gloomy with big gray black blobs and Mm -hmm. (laughs) you could see it was a rough time for her and that was coming out but most of it all was just joyous and beautiful just I was shocked when I learned what a difficult time she had it didn't appear so from her canvases no it doesn't it doesn't so okay back to your art you mentioned that your art has evolved do you Mm -hmm. want to talk about that how you how you started and okay. the development of it. Okay. However well, much you want to share. I okay. mean, well, there could be a lot there. Let's see. I'm, I'll be 66 <laughs> in a month, so <laughs> pull up a chair. <laughs> um, well, I started as a kid, and I started drawing with the first TV artist who had a program. His name was John Nagy, and he had a series, John Nagy Learned to Draw, he had books out and uh, little kits, and he had a TV show, which you can still Google online, and his daughter set up a website, so you can see some of his programs. And 
Um, I did all those exercises. I got his kits. I watched his shows. I followed along. He had a little goatee. I thought he was really old. I think he was probably about 30 when he did those shows, you know, but um, he was good. And the, the lessons are very good. And actually, we still use his lessons here in our school. Oh, wow. And Andy Warhol learned to draw with John Nagy. So I feel like I'm in good company yes. there. Um, then after that, I did every paint by number that they probably came out with. You know, that was my thing. And uh, I don't remember too much about that because that was before I was 10, I guess. And I just did tons and tons of those. And back then, I think it was oil paint and... Uh, it, it, it was fun. I just loved it. It was an escape. It was a refuge. And then when I was a teenager, I continued with oil painting. And somewhere along the line, acrylic paint got to be a little more commonplace. And I got some of that. And I did all sorts of other things, marbling on paper and paper making and uh, making stuff out of found objects and all of that. And then I went on to school and, you know, got some formal training. And my schooling was off and on for quite a long time. But all along the years, I was always making art, but I didn't uh, commit myself entirely to that. I didn't know how to make a living doing it. And I um, had other jobs, which in hindsight were really good experiences for me because they allowed me to learn how to run a business. Um, in publishing and in some other businesses where I had management type things where I learned uh, how business works just from a hands-on basis, not getting an MBA, but learning all the ins and outs of a business. And so that was good. But I was always painting and showing my work here and there in coffee shops and so on. But when my daughter was born and I was a little older, I was 36, I thought, okay, here she is a girl in the world that we live in, and if I'm going to show her that you can really do anything you want to do with your life, I have to do it myself. And so I just made a commitment then that everything I did, even if it was a job um, to earn money, would always be related to the art world in, in the art field. And I stuck to that, and I did it even to the point of having a part-time job for a year with a um, digital resource company. And that was when I learned how to do all the computer stuff that I use now. Mm -hmm. um, web work, Photoshop, image manipulation, and feeling comfortable with desktop publishing and all that sort of stuff. And I, it was a very part-time job, so I was able to learn the things that I need now as a practicing artist that I would have to pay a whole lot of money to somebody else to do for me. So, um, and, it, and teaching. And so I did, I taught too, and I was able to do that and then eventually started my own business. And, um, and that again evolved in the last almost 11 years from one room, uh, which was a teaching venue and my gallery and my workspace to now a thriving business with, oh, eight or nine or 10 teachers every season and, um, a gallery and work in workspace and resident artists who rent workspace and contribute to the running of the gallery. So, and now what I'm, my next year's goal for 2017 is to get more help with the administrative end of it and spend more time than ever before back with my painting and let things kind of run themselves. And I'm getting there. Mm -hmm. I'm getting to that point where I can free that up. 
um, to all that other business end of it to um, really just being much more of a full-time practicing artist. You wear many hats right now. I do, but you know, every professional artist does. Mm -hmm. I'm not unique in that. I just have a different business model, but every artist has to be their own advertiser and their own bookkeeper and their own uh, business person, and they need to plan their cash flow and all of that. Um, whether they hire somebody to help them with part of that or not, they still have to manage it. Mm -hmm. So any, any successful practicing artist has to wear many hats. My hats are the hats I've chosen to put on, you know, so my business model is, is something that has evolved through no grand plan, but just what worked and doing more of it and renting a little more space and mm -hmm. finding great colleagues to work with and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. This feels to me, and this is just my intuition, I have no idea if this is really what you're doing here, but when I walk in and see what's going on, it feels like a community that you're developing as well as a gallery. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. And, and while the business is not a cooperative in that we have group decisions over the nitty-gritty of the business, um, I am the owner, and I make those decisions. If it weren't for the hard work of everybody involved, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. So you, if you've heard the banging on the walls, that's an artist putting up new work for our events. And um, people that do the gallery opening, you know, days when we have gallery open and they do their share on it. But the idea is everyone will benefit mm -hmm. um, from that involvement, um, both financially and with exposure of their art, but also with a community that's supportive of that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's not um, a type of lifestyle that has any kind of guaranteed financial um, security at all, unless one is so lucky to have uh, family members that will support them financially, um, or the one in a million that become blue chip artists, which is extremely difficult and rare. It's, it's usually an ongoing financial struggle. Mm -hmm. So when we can work together, it makes it not so hard. Mm -hmm. It makes it not so daunting, and I think we can all reassure each other that we're on the right path. That's great to hear. Yeah. And it sounds like you're saying financial gain is not necessarily the reason to be doing this. It's not, but it's important. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that's the, the way of the world, and we want to be able to be self-supporting artists mm -hmm. um, through our work. Mm -hmm. um, of course, all of us do. And, uh, and, you know, keep an eye on the bottom line and learn. And so, you know, when I was a younger artist, I didn't have a mentor to teach me that sort of thing. I, I learned business through sort of falling into the right kind of jobs and things like that. What we can do here is mentor younger artists and help them with the realities of things. Um, we do that some through scholarship programs and internships that we have here um, because there's no other way to learn the nitty-gritty of earning a living um, with it and, um, and then support each other through advocating for one another, you know. Right. Um, you know, and all of us that here work in the gallery, we're always showing the visitors the work of everybody, not just our own work, you know. Mm -hmm. It's we're not 
so self-centered about it. And by doing that, we all prosper. Um, and, you know. Sometimes it can be easier to talk about somebody else's work. Actually, I find that true for myself. Uh-huh. I can brag about somebody else's work a lot easier than I can brag about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I can talk about the achievements, but when I, in the places we've put art in wonderful collections and museum sales or, you know, corporate collections and things like that, it's so easy for me to talk about the other artists and all the wonderful things they've done. But when I, for myself, it just sounds so braggy, you know. I, it's a little embarrassing, so I just don't really do that. Mm-hmm. And they can do that for you. They though. can do that for me, yeah. Yeah, it can be mutual. <laughs> That's right. That's great. That's right. Yeah. So, can you describe a little what their scenario is like and how how it works? How artists end up landing here? Okay. Well, it's been a, it, because the space started in one room. Um, gradually over the years, I was able to acquire adjoining square footage to this one classroom space um, as people vacated. Mm-hmm. And so every time something became available, I would rent that part and just expand. Mm-hmm. And the latest expansion happened about a year and a half ago, where we were actually able to open up a good area that allowed for four resident artists to set up dedicated workspace and so we have five resident artists and that includes me and we all take turns keeping the gallery open and doing gallery duty and that means we show the work we make sales we greet the customers um, generally are the gallery specialist for the day Mm -hmm. and if our own work has to take back seat that day for that then that's what happens the customer comes first but it's a very little amount of time in the greater scheme of things when you get the benefit of six or seven days a week of having your work represented by somebody. So we share those responsibilities. But there's other artists here that just um, exhibit in certain designated areas of the gallery um, in their space. And it is almost, enti- well, it is entirely by invitation mm-hmm. over the years. I will always accept submissions um, of work and uh, and never tell anybody no um, unless it's clear that there's not a fit. I might never dangle you know something out there for somebody if it's not realistic for our space, but I have invited people to be in the gallery, and the people that have been invited to be in the gallery almost never leave. Um, so with the expanded space, we've been at it, able to add new artists, but also give our existing artists more uh, exhibition space. So there's that. Um, we, the gallery at the start, we had special shows, and we would feature artists, but it's not possible now. We have such a good group of artists that there's just no room to take down their work to put up a special show, so we just don't do that. We sometimes will have a theme where everybody contributes a piece or two to a theme that we came up with and um, that would reflect that that concept or idea, but it, we don't reach out. Um, we have a few artists that are internationally known that are guests, kind of like guest artists, and they don't have a designated space, but I'm glad to have a few of their pieces in here because it's wonderful work and it adds to our uh, reputation mm-hmm. as a... a far-reaching gallery with 
ties to Europe and Australia and New Zealand and so on like that, or you know throughout the United States, and so we do have that. But um, I'd say our our group of artists um, is is pretty fixed as to who it is, and there's very little change um, from those really really good artists, mostly local, mm-hmm. that I have nurtured and. Uh, invited into the gallery over the years. Mm-hmm. How wonderful you were able to kind of choose who you wanted to have it, around you. It, it It is, and it's been a process. I mean, originally this building was kind of ramshackled and kind of urban slum-like. Um, the building owner has done remarkable work to turn it into a show place, and we have a full... Uh, building now it's the largest building in the river arts district so we went from being a a less desirable or really an undesirable place to be to probably the most desirable or one of the most desirable buildings in the river arts district and so now that's why I can't pry anybody out of here (laughs) that we I get applications every week sometimes three or four um, submissions to be in the gallery and of course at this point I just have to say there's no room mm-hmm. but I always will accept them and I always save their information so I'm you know never shut the door in anybody's face but the reality of it is is there's probably not going to be um, uh, much change that's not to say that there isn't change in the gallery because one of the requirements is you, the work is changed out every three or four months with new work and there's constant flow of new work coming in and out we make sales Artists have to bring new work in and put up on the on the walls immediately. So contractually, everybody's responsible for freshening their look up. We are not a stale place. I would say that somebody comes in here one month and the next month they will see new work. Mm, and we have collectors know. that come in every month to see what's new. That's so great. that's part of what we have to do here too. too. Okay. Yeah. And how do you promote the gallery? Well, as cheaply as possible. Um, probably this last year I've spent more money in promotion than any other year before, but there's a lot of ways to do it. The Internet is remarkable. We collect emails from people that come into the gallery, and we have a large email list for both um, attendees of the class and for just collectors. And we do, you know, we, there's promotion that way on a regular basis. The newspaper um, has a calendar, and they will put things in the newspaper free of charge. I um, we are we promote through Romantic Asheville, which is actually a paid venue, but they're very very supportive, and they don't just take anybody. So I'm really glad to be in that. And they're a website that uh, has a wonderful place to go to see what is happening in the uh, nature and places to eat and places to stay and things to do. Mm-hmm. And so we're on that. And um, I write. I write articles for publications uh, uh, that go into various things like uh, Rapid River and Western North Carolina Women Magazine. I've had articles in that. And uh, I don't get paid for that, but I like to do it. And I like to write essays about various subjects that come to mind. So there's that. And then word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, the River Arts District Association does a lot of promotion. And we're part of that. So, you know, we get brochures and all of that kind of websites, whatever. Okay. Thanks. And do you <laughs> want to say anything about the classes? Yeah, I would like to. Um, I've been a longtime teacher. 
And the way that I was actually able to start this studio was through teaching. I had taught in um, institutions, not, you know, like community colleges and th- that type of institution, okay. <laughs> not a mental institution, although sometimes I felt like it was a little crazy. <laughs> but, um, and, but when my daughter turned 18, I thought, I, I want to just start doing my own thing. The main thing was just to break f- free and develop my own ideas with classes. And I had been working with some really, really promising adult learners that I felt like didn't have a place to come to really grow and develop in a democratic educational um, method where, you know, the, the, it could be sort of self-directed directed, and curriculum could be designed to meet the needs of the adult learner. And I also wanted to provide a university quality educational um, venue for older adults that didn't want to go back to freshmen in college. I mean, seriously, it's some had PhDs and some had great careers and some were mothers that had children at home that could only come on certain days and all of those types of things. So I wanted to make a flexible scheduling um, type thing and really make it accessible to anybody. So I started in the one room and I was the only teacher. And then I had over the first couple of years, I had a couple of people come in and teach this or that, but, you know, coming and going of that type of thing. And it was, it was probably a little more traditional in six and eight week courses. That was what was demanded. And then over the years, um, through the artists that are here exhibiting and through just making connections with some of the really, really excellent um, professional teachers, Laurel Bacon is one who was somebody that you have interviewed. She's top-notch in both her work and her um, teaching methods. She's excellent. Um, was able to just really have a good group of artists so that we can uh, tailor-make a, a season of art classes that um, meets the needs of what people are interested in at the time. And our core program is our uh, ongoing open studios. That provides continuity, which everybody needs. You have to keep painting. You can't just take one, a workshop for two days and then, you know, unless you're just self-motivated and you can do it on your own, having that availability of continuous instruction year-round is really important. So that's sort of the core program here. And then workshops provide those special topics for people to get new skills, for example, encaustic, scratch board, um, specifics in oil and acrylic painting that may be a special method like painting glass and metal reflections, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in every, every season we reevaluate and we ask the students, what do you want, you know, and uh, have, have some of the top best teachers in the region and a few guest artists from out of town that come in every year to... Well, thank you. Yeah. I was looking at your website in anticipation of mm-hmm. talking with you today, and mm-hmm. you're touching on some of the things that really struck me on your website. Um, you mentioned about nurturing the adult artist, that you know, you're doing that and partly by finding out what they want to learn. That mm-hmm. was you know, something that really hit me on your website. Like mm-hmm. You're not just coming up with the classes people choose to teach. You are looking at 
where your students are at and mm -hmm. what they need and are asking for. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I don't know, I just loved reading that. Yeah. Well, it comes from two different places. First, you want to, to meet the needs of your current participants or participants that maybe have said, I want to learn this, but you don't have it, that sort of thing. So we want to supply that sort of thing. And of course, scheduling is really, really important for the adult learner of any age, from 18 on up to 80 or 90. We've had people from all those age, ages. Um, but also, to get the best education, it's important for the teachers to teach what they do best and what they love best. And here's what happens in, say, a college or a university. Um, and I am not putting that down. I just want to say that I think these are wonderful educational venues, and I encourage all young aspiring artists to get their degrees up through their MFA if they can. I just think that's highly important. Um, but what happens is sometimes a teacher may say, they may be you know, into printmaking, and then they are teaching a drawing 101 class, and that's not really what they're doing in their career. Um, what we're able to do here is teachers can teach what they do best mm -hmm. and the subjects that they do best, and so they're not forced or required to do anything else. And what happens when that happens is the learner gets to learn all the little inside um, discoveries that that artist has made and all the things that they're passionate about and things that you can't read in books and things that you can't get in a basic level course because that artist has learned through, through their own practice of wonderful techniques and discoveries that they've made. So we can give that to the to the learner. So it's, it's a two-way street. Plus the fact that the artists that teach get to do what they love, and it's fun. Right. So you don't want to teach, you know, I mean, I don't want to teach anybody how to change the oil in my truck. I may know how to do it, but I certainly don't want to do it, and I don't want to teach it. So, you know, or I may not draw with graphite, although I think everybody should learn how to do that. That may not be what I'm doing, so I don't want to teach that. Mm -hmm. But somebody that's doing it, then they should teach it. So if your students want to learn about some kind of specific area about encaustics, you mm -hmm. are going to bring in a wonderful encaustic working artist who has gone through the development you have shared with us, has exactly. gone through that and knows the ins and outs of that medium and loves it. Exactly. And, and one of the things that also is we can develop new methods here through collaboration with teachers, mm -hmm. let's say in encaustic, and we've done that. We've got so, several unique classes that, um, or at the teachers that they'll teach exclusively in our region, uh, processes that they've developed in that um, in that medium, and a, a few of them may go someplace else, like another state, to teach that. But here in our region, they would get it here, mm -hmm. and it's only taught by that one person because they've developed the methods. They're the one. <laughs> yeah, we just had a, a wonderful teacher, Michelle Belto, coming from um, San Antonio, Texas, and she's developed some fabulous sculptural techniques that are unique to her. Mm -hmm. And we were able to have her come in, and you know, and then people ask us. They say, "Oh gosh, I wish we could do this or that," and. You know, or sometimes we just say, here's some ideas. Which ones do you like? You know, a lot of times the teachers are coming up with new ideas, too. Mm -hmm. And we test it out. 
and if we get a good response then we go with it and offer it again you know and or elaborate on those methods and you know get better so um. yeah and I want to at this time encourage people to come check out this gallery because the results you guys are getting it's just a wonderful feast for the eyes it is fabulous to walk through here and well, see you. what's happening thank yeah. you thank I have you. to come back yeah. <laughs> well it's great for me because I get to come to a job with all this beautiful art everywhere it's like it's like heaven yeah. you know I never mind coming to work I never dread it it's I get to come in here and just see all this beautiful stuff in this you know ever on every square inch of the wall it's it's sort of unbelievable really to you know have that yeah, it's very uplifting yeah. to walk in here, I think. Yeah, and in the classroom, as you can see, um, we've got beautiful art on the wall in here, too. It's a lot of large works in here, so it's a, it's a stimulation for everybody. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. The other thing that really hit me, probably because it's something I strongly believe and share and say, that you had is something on your site about becoming best friends with your materials mm -hmm. and i i like that i i say that to people too you know you you just you have to make friends with your materials yep. and that only comes from using them regularly right over mm -hmm. and over yeah that was something that really hit me too mm -hmm. and there there's a lot involved with that too i mean there's chemistry mm -hmm. and there's physics um, how we see things like if you we live in the mountains we're so lucky and um, we can see the distant mountains and why they're blue gray soft and then they kind of fuzz out and uh, as things are closer to us we see the greens and then we see the trees and then get up really close you can see the leaves on the trees well that's all physics and the way light works and um, the light rays how far they go and all that sort of thing and so we can mimic that so we've got to know something about science and then we also need to know how our various materials work. Mm -hmm. Some paints are transparent, some are opaque, some are very strong tinting, some are soft. Um, you can have two red um, paints that you squeeze them out of the tube and they look just the same. You start to mix with them and they turn into totally different creatures, you know. So um, if you don't know that, um, you're very handicapped in what you do. So um, it's it, it's interesting. Some people or some artists are very, very curious and they get an all into the chemistry of it and know the names of all the pigments and this and that. And some artists don't want to get that uh, involved with it, but they will be happy for somebody to tell them okay, this one is transparent and here's what you can do with it. And then they learn it that way. Well, they may not understand the actual reason why that is due to pigment particle size and light rays and all that kind of stuff, but they know what it works. So that's, that's as much as you need mm -hmm. is just uh, doing that. But um, mastery of medium is one of the components to success. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that a teacher can teach. You know, it's knowing those types of technical things that are really important. And I'm curious, I know at one point you were using oil pastels, and I, I have spent years working and making friends with oil mm -hmm. pastels, and mm -hmm. curious if that is still something you are 
interested in? Do you well, still do those? Well, I don't do um, oil pastel painting as much, although I do use them. I actually am using them within my encaustic work now, um, but I love them. And um, I love the medium, so I still have them here in the studio. I got them into them a lot when I broke my wrist, and I was kind of disabled um, as to what I could do. I could only do little smaller things, and I had to work on a drawing table and prop my wrist up there and you know where I just sort of kept it stable and not moving it around, and I couldn't carry much of anything. So that went on for, uh, seems like forever, but it wasn't that long. But at that time, I worked in that medium quite a bit and then continued on. And uh, I love that medium, but it's a, it's a tricky one because it's, uh, you have to learn the techniques that are specific to that medium. And you have to just put out the money and buy the best. Mm -hmm. The, the kid stuff is crayons, you know, Mm -hmm. so if you, bad crayons. Worse than Crayola. (laughs) So if you get the $3 set, it's not so good. But, um, yeah, I do love them. And I use them a lot with encaustic work. I can do glazes with it. I can um, work with textural um, materials and do highlights and things like that. Oh, cool. Thank you. I was curious about that. And I do want to mention, too, when we were setting up this interview, I had sent Fleeta an email just asking if there's anything particular she wanted to cover and one of the things we talked about in our email exchange she wanted to be sure that we didn't overshadow talking about herself and her own art with Mm -hmm. the part of her that is a teacher and contributing to the growth of the other artists so Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure if there is anything else you would love to share about your own work and mm-hmm. if you want to you know say anything more about what i just said okay well it it is a, it has been a professional challenge for me um because i uh, was not born into a trust fund or something like that so i've had to make a living um and if i'm going to do it from my art i've had to you know diversify and have eggs in lots of baskets and teaching is an obvious one if one likes to do that, you know, and I, I do, I like to teach. Um, but it can also overshadow the reputation and perception of the individual artist. Um, and there's a saying that those can, that can do and those that can't teach. So I won't say that I'm a big literary person, but I did look it up this morning and it actually comes from a, um, a, a Shaw play, and it was just one of those clever quotes. And it has plagued artists for a long time that somebody that had has made their living and their reputation as a teacher, that's how they're identified. And a large part of being an artist is having a public persona and identity. In a way, it's almost like being an actor. You know, it's it's not like you're putting on a fake front, but you do have to have a persona that is identifiable in some way that people can remember you and uh, identify with. And when it's being a teacher, then the artwork is sometimes sort of discounted by the public. And that's just the reality of it. Um, there's a famous artist, Hans Hoffman, who's it has taken decades for him to be 
truly validated as a very, very good abstract artist because he was known during the abstract expressionist period and before as such a influential teacher that he he was in his 60s before he even began to be recognized or get good shows. And it was after his death, many decades later, that he was actually being exhibited um, as some important artist. So um, so there's been that battle. And I, I have been deliberately working toward not being identified as a teacher as much as um, as a professional artist. Um, and some of it has just had to do with not teaching as much, which I really had to s- cut back on anyway, just for my own strength. But, um, you know, to step back from that and put more work into my professional persona, um, as, and it's, it's something that is a challenge for artists when they do, must be self-supporting and must do other jobs to, um, not be known as those, as those other things, but as, as really recognized as an artist. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for explaining that and yeah. expressing it the way you did. Yeah. And did we cover your art? Is there anything else you really want to share? You know, I have time mm-hmm. if you think. didn't cover. Let me think. Um, well, I will just say that I really love to do it. I really love to make art, and sometimes it's a little hard to get started, but once I do, I just don't want to stop. And, uh, you know, each day is uh, an exciting thing. It's stimulating to be planning it and thinking about it, and that's a big part of it, too. So just waking up at 3 in the morning and coming up with an idea or writing in a journal how many paintings I want to paint of this particular size and what they're going to be and just taking notes, all that's part of it. And it's a, it's just a really, really fun thing to do. You know, it's a, it's just like being a kid and, Mm -hmm. you know, playing, you know, but with an adult perspective and a deliberate intention. Mm -hmm. You love the process. It sounds like. I do. I love the process. It's a, um, a restful, time to get out of your cares and put stress aside. And I think that the people that come here and learn from us, that's a big reason that they do it, Uh, often not for any career development. Sometimes it is for career development, but often just as a pastime that is life-enhancing. And uh, I think that's really important, and that's really, really okay. And, you know, we, we don't have a agenda here to make everybody a professional artist, but, all, but to make lives better through a peaceful, fulfilling, positive, supportive type activity that is kind and tolerant and accepting of everyone. I, that's, I think art can get us to that headspace mm-hmm. where we're, we, we can see things from other people's perspectives. And uh, when we work together and understand that we are all from different places and different experiences and different walks of life and different lifestyles, um, but we have a shared love of creativity, that's just, it just levels the playing field all the way around for everybody. So I think it's an extremely, extremely healthy thing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it's wonderful to hear you talk about how much you love it. And is there anything else, or should we talk about your websites now? We can, sure. Okay. Sure. Okay, well, I'll say the business one first because it's easier to spell. It's 310art.com. That's the numerals 310art.com. And that's the name of our business here in the gallery and the school. Okay. And my own personal website is my name fleetamonahan.com and that's quite a mouthful so it's f-l-e-t-a m-o-n-a g-h-a-n dot com great and I will link to these on the local hearted blog when we release your show so people can just visit that site and link right over to well, you that'd be great and there should be a place on both sites where you can subscribe to a a mailing list, an emailing list. It's one of those free, we won't share your email with anybody kind of things. And if you're interested in just keeping in touch with things we have going on here, we um, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, through the wonders of the internet, we are meeting new people every day. It's just quite incredible, you know, the Great. way that works. <laughs> Great. Well, Fleeta. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. This has been a pleasure to talk to you. Great to talk to you too. Thank Thank you you. so much. 310 Art is currently displaying the work of its resident artists in a show called Inside Out, which runs from April 15th through June 30th, 2017. And the hours are Monday through Saturday, 11 to 5, and Sunday, 12 to 4. Summer classes at 310 Art begin in June with their yearly focus on wax. They call the series Hot and Cold because they cover methods in encaustic as well as oil with cold wax. Along with their regular course offerings in oils, acrylics, watercolor, and special topics. Fleeta and the rest of the 310 artists will participate in the spring studio stroll of the River Arts District on May 20th and 21st, 2017, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. both days. 310 Art will feature lots of new pieces in the gallery. They'll be having art demos and offering refreshments. Free trolley rides are offered throughout the River Arts District, and it's a great opportunity to get out in Asheville and see the work of all the participating artists. Elise Okrand from Local Hearted Podcast episode number 8 and Joseph Pearson from episode number 14 both show in the River Arts District. So that's a good time to get to meet them too and see their work. I also have upcoming shows scheduled with more of the River Arts District artists that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. One more event I want to mention that isn't related to Fleeta and her school is the Weaverville Art Safari Spring Studio Tour, which is April 29th and 30th, that's a Saturday and Sunday, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., with a preview party on Friday, April 28th, from 6 to 8 p.m. Leo Monahan, who was featured in Local Hearted Podcast episode number three, is part of the Weaverville Art Safari So that will be a great time to go meet Leo and see his awesome paper sculptures. Okay, head on over to the show notes for this episode at localhearted.com slash Fleeta Monahan for links to her sites and examples of her work. 
And while you're at the Local Hearted website, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode, please sign up for my mailing list. Thank you so much for listening. This is Meredith Adler for the Local Hearted podcast. And the podcast's theme music, Learning to Fly, is courtesy of and copyrighted by Jamie Noter Thomas. <laughs>